evening, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Tectonic. My name is Mark Hurst, and I will be your host for the next hour here on WFMU, Freeform Station of the Nation, out of Jersey City in the great state of New Jersey. I usually say this is live from Jersey City, but I will admit this is not exactly live as I am recording this a few days in advance. This show is airing on July 4th, 2022, and I, at the moment, am planning on being out of town on July 4th, but I still wanted to put a show together for you, the listeners, so that I could share a montage of some past interviews that I have really enjoyed over the years. And uh, so that's what we're going to do. This is going to be a montage show. And as I went through old shows, I realized that some of my favorite interviews that are not really, I didn't want to do anything that was too recent that you had just heard. So I went into the archives and I found a stretch of some really good shows in the third season of Tectonic. This was the one that went from fall 2019 through spring 2020, that that third long season of Tectonic uh, is where all of the clips for this montage show are going to come from. And so what we're going to do is I'm going to tell you what's in the clip, and then I'm going to play the clip, and then we're going to go to the next clip. And if you stick around for the full hour, which I hope you will, you'll get a sense of some of the thinking and some of the uh, conversations that we had now two, two and a half years ago leading up to where we are today. It's a nice snapshot, and you'll see that uh, a number of the themes have stuck with us over the years. Why don't we go ahead and get started? This first clip is one of my favorite interviews I've ever done for Tectonic. This was with an author named Jeremiah Moss, who wrote a fabulous book called Vanishing New York, How a Great City Lost Its Soul. This interview is from August 26, 2019. You can listen to the whole interview if you go to the archives at wfmu.org. Uh, the, the clip I'm going to uh, play for you starts around minute 32 if you want to listen uh, from the archives. But here is uh, about a 12-minute clip. I'm speaking with Jeremiah Moss about his book, Vanishing New York, and how New York has really changed in recent years. And you'll see we start with uh, city policy and we get into phones and what smartphones have done to the life of the city. Here we go. The constant theme that you're reminding the reader, this is not just some quote-unquote natural evolution of the free market. The invisible hand brought this economic regime here. No, this was policy. And one thing that made me think of was last fall when Amazon wanted to come in and build what they called would be a second headquarters, actually just a large office in Long Island City. In the, in the depths of their wisdom, our mayor and governor conspired somewhat secretly to offer Amazon $3 billion, essentially as a bribe, from me and you, Jeremiah, and other New York City taxpayers in order to pay the richest man in the world to build an office in our city. That's policy. That's not an accident or just us sitting there. That's policy. Those are policymakers who are offering that, and it comes from a particular economic regime. So I saw that last fall, but what I appreciated about Vanishing New York is that you brought it back to the roots back in the 1970s when that really shifted. So there has been this trend to make the city more comfortable, more frictionless, more familiar to people coming from the rest of the country. One of the examples that I really liked in the book was of 7-Eleven at two different points in recent history in New York. Okay, so this example is going to tell two very brief stories of a 7-Eleven opening in New York City. You write, in 1982, 7-Eleven closed their last location on the island of Manhattan. This emblem of suburbia had tried for years to penetrate the city's tough center, but Manhattanites of the time would not be seduced by its slurpy siren song. Good alliteration. They had an abundance of corner grocers, cafes, and newsstands, 
for what do they need 7-Eleven? But times have changed, and in 2005, testing the new climate, the chain launched a fresh offensive, planting a store on 23rd Street and Park Avenue South. At the grand opening, crowds of people lined up to get in, thrilled by the experience of waiting for free Slurpee samples. And here's the punchline. The Times credited the warm reception to city dwellers' nostalgia for their suburban pasts. And that, to me, was a great example that signaled the arrival of a new generation of New Yorkers, which you write about elsewhere in the book, who came from the suburbs and wanted to retain the familiarity and comfort rather than immerse themselves in the potentially foreign and chaotic culture of New York City. Yeah, exactly. And it is very much a different population, a different generation, right? That that those of us who left the suburbs, as I did, in small towns, I'll speak for myself, I wanted to leave that town as far behind as possible and everything about it. I didn't want to bring any of that with me. I wanted to be a city person. I wanted to shuck all of that off and take on the city. But a lot of the new people don't want to do that. They want to bring suburban life into the city with all the comforts and the cleanliness and the orderliness and the predictability, right? Um, that is, in my mind, completely at odds with what a city is in its bones, which is to be unpredictable and unsafe. And when I say unsafe, I mean psychologically unsafe, that, that you can collide with, some, with difference and you have to change. You have to adapt yourself to difference. It's not supposed to adapt itself to you. So the city is that way. You are to adapt to New York. You are not to make New York adapt to you. And yet that's exactly what's happening. You write so well about this ballet of walking through New York crowds in years past, where you had to adapt to people who were coming at you. They did the same. Everyone was able to get where they were going by seeing each other and adapting their movement to each other that busy intersection, whatever it was, is a case in point for, for what you're saying about a city. And you've coined another term, this time describing the people who are walking around with faces buried in screens. You call them eye zombies. Here's what you write in the chapter on the sidewalk. Sleepwalking inside digital bubbles, the eye zombies hustle through the city without looking. And you can't really have a compassion for a thing or a person without beholding it. Without eye contact, our ability to empathize can be impaired. And then finally you conclude, I feel irritated and off-kilter whenever the eye zombies are around. <laughs> yeah, and this is where my daily rage really gets <laughs> turned up. The city is meant to be a collective experience, right? And even though we have our privacy and there's always been a sense of anonymity in the city that gives people a lot of space, there's also a collective experience. And part of the collective experience is walking on the sidewalk and being in the cafes and, and all the rest of it. So when we're walking on the sidewalk and I see you and you see me and I swivel and you swivel, we avoid each other. We don't collide. We're working together for that brief moment. Absolutely. Absolutely. We're collaborating. And it takes collaboration to live in an overcrowded, chaotic city. So now these people are saying, this is what I hear them saying. They're saying, I'm not going to work with you. I'm not going to collaborate. I'm not going to do my 50%. You're going to do 100% of the work. And I, I resent that. I don't want to do 100% of the work. I want to do 50%. I will do my 50%, but you got to do your 50 So what I find happens then is I find myself trying to come up with ways to not get hit on the street. Sometimes I'll, I'll look down at the ground or I'll look to the side. None of these things are things I like to do. Once I figured out that if I, if I lace my fingers in front of my chest and I just twiddle my thumbs and I look at my thumbs while I twiddle them, people will take that as a signal that I'm doing what they're doing. I'm sort of mirroring them in this, you know, and they'll move out of the way. Now, maybe they're moving out of the way because they think I'm crazy, but I think that they're actually perceiving that I might be holding a device like theirs and therefore, they will give me the mutual respect and get out of my way. But if I'm not holding the device, they will hit, they will hit me in the chest uh, much of the time. So this happens. 
And I do think that this is also a, a suburban piece. There's a way in which they are in their cars when they are looking at the screens. In the car, you're a single person in a car, you have your privacy. It's climate controlled, you have the music you want, you don't have to look at anybody, you don't have to talk to anybody. And so these are people who, who want to retain that, and they have their little screen, and they're creating a pod around them. Now, if you are, this is something else I've noticed, if you are in their way, and they hit you, they will become indignant, and they will blame you for it, because you have, in their mind, disrupted their fantasy of privacy, and they will become enraged. And I've had people do it, I've had people turn around and then hit me again in the back, they'll come up behind me and shove me, they'll scream at me. I mean, it's really, you know, they become quite violent when their fantasy is ruptured by another human being. My note here was, that's all the time now. It's no longer the occasional rude person in their digital bubble. It's now the default. This is what really, I'm seeing it really bothers me that this is no longer this, and I don't just mean iPhones. I mean this whole agenda of blandalism and suburbanization. All of this is now flipped to such an extent that that becomes the default expectation of what New York is and what city living is. And if you're really an oddball, Jeremiah, twiddling your thumbs and you don't even have a digital device in your hand, life is going to get harder for you. You know what's strange? I just thought of this, Jeremiah. It's flipped to the extent that you, in some ways, are returning to the position that you started in, in the town you grew up in. That you're out of step. And, and that's what makes me so angry so much of the time, is that I came here and I found that sense of belonging and home and, and, and that there were people who were like me, even if they weren't exactly like me, you could feel that they were out of step in the larger world. And this sense of invasion and the sense of having that taken away from me is it's absolutely enraging. And there's nowhere, I don't really know where I'm supposed to go. It is very much, uh, you know, the the norm now. And there's a way in which, you know, sometimes I, I find myself, and this may be my own, you know, projection going, but... I'll be sitting in like the dentist's office waiting, right? And I, I can, I'm good with my own thoughts. I'm pretty good with that. So I'm not like, did you see the study where they had the people and they put them in a room and they took away their iPhones and, and they could either be alone with their own thoughts or they could give themselves electroshocks. And many of them chose to give themselves painful electroshocks rather than be alone with their own thoughts. So. I'm good with my own thoughts. I can sit in the in the waiting room of the dentist's office and I don't need an iPhone and I don't even need to look at a magazine. I can just think. But everybody else is on the phone. They will look at me suspiciously. Like, what am I doing? What's wrong with me? And there's this way in which I start to feel like a creep or a predator of some sort because I'm not looking at a phone. So when I'm on the subway now and somebody's sitting next to me and they're scrolling and their energy is so frenetic and fractured and I can feel that energy. Right? Somebody's reading a book, the energy is calm, you can feel their mind thinking, you can feel that in the air. But when they're scrolling, it's this kind of crackling insanity, is what it feels like to me. And they'll be doing it right next to me. And so I, I, do, I feel like a crazy person, but I'll, you know, I'll put my hands up like horse blinders around my eyes, or if I have a hat, I'll take it. To, I don't want to see it. But there's no way to get around it, it just keeps invading and invading and invading. Until and, and I think that there is a way in which it's built into this stuff that is really is supposed to break us all down so that we go out and buy this crap and, and conform. People sometimes give me trouble for being angry, and I write about anger in the book, and I write about the incredible importance of being angry. And New Yorkers used to have that kind of edge, right? New Yorkers were cranky, and, yes. and, and cranky people resist. People who aren't angry resist nothing. So we need to be angry about this. And we're back. You're listening to Tectonic on WFMU on a special montage show on July 4th, 2022. We just heard my interview or a clip from my interview 
with Jeremiah Moss, author of the book Vanishing New York, How a Great City Lost Its Soul. The interview originally aired on August 26, 2019. You can find the whole interview in the archives at WFMU.org, or you can go to the one-page Tectonic website at tectonic.fm. That's T-E-C-H tonic.fm. We're now going to go to an interview from later in 2019. This was from the show on December 16, 2019. And there were two very funny, very creative guys, Matt Kleinman and Sam West, who put together a podcast series called Smarter, S-M-A-R-T-R. This was a satire of Silicon Valley and some of the tech bros and investors and VCs that inhabit Silicon Valley, and their satire was just spot on. So I'm going to play you a little bit of my interview with Matt Kleiman and Sam West talking about Smarter, which itself is going to include uh, one or two clips from the podcast that I really liked. Here it is. When I'm leaning into a microphone, I kind of naturally, you know, enunciate better. But yeah, no, I, I tried to do something a little different, but I do have a very strange voice um, in real life, too. And this is, <laughs> unique, this is a very voice. unique voice. It's a unique voice, and I, I don't, I'm sorry, I don't mean to. No, oh, no, please, no. It's, it's, come I'm across. quite used to it. It's not offensive at all. <laughs> okay, because when I was listening to the first episode or two, Sam, as Noah Lucas, you're on all the time, oh, yeah. uh, other than these fictional startup founders. And I thought, whoever they cast as Noah Lucas is just perfect. I mean, that voice <laughs> he does sounds exactly like what a... Fraud. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> a clueless, self-righteous complete doofus of a billionaire in, in Silicon Valley would sound like. Yeah, I mean, the only difference is that he has money. I'm just all those adjectives without the billion dollars. But like, yeah, so then <laughs> some, for some reason I can nail it. I can just pretend I have money. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's talk about Noah Lucas. This is so well done. Noah, as you said, is going through every episode and evaluating a different startup, like how I built this. But there's a subplot that arcs across the entire series that gives you a glimpse into Noah and his home life and his family life, such as it is, which mostly consists of him ignoring his wife and three sons. Mm -hmm. One of the moments in the series that really signifies who Noah is, is when the zoning commission of San Francisco comes knocking at his door because they suspect that the 80-story skyscraper that he is living in is um, being used for residential use rather than the commercial use that it's zoned for. Right. <laughs> and <laughs> and so Noah has to quickly fill up his skyscraper with actors who pretend to be workers, you know, employees of his company, so that it looks for the inspector as though he's using it for commercial use. And as they're going, he and his assistant slash CFO are going up the elevator and looking at the various floors. What the hell is all this stuff? I've never even been on this floor before. This is your son Samus's room. That's his bed and his possessions. Get rid of him. He hates possessions. He wants experiences. Well, this room looks fine. Noah, there are just ayahuasca buckets and combo frogs in here. It's an ideation space. Am I really going to have to explain to this guy how ideas form? Okay, so we cleared the sniper's nest out of the 50th floor. What? So I'm undefended? And his his sons all have video game names. What are his sons' names? Uh, Link, Samus, and Castlevania. <laughs> Noah's a fan of 80s uh, Nintendo. Okay, you mentioned Peter Thiel and Elon Musk. As I've covered on this show, Elon Musk, and for that matter, Peter Thiel, are both legendary and not liking to be made fun of or to be disagreed with publicly. So let me just tell both of you gentlemen, you, you both did a horrible job at, at <laughs> characterizing them. Good, good. Yeah. Yes, yes. My, my next question is, why are you both against innovation? <laughs> so Matt and I uh, started working together years and years ago when we were both uh, still working, making videos for The Onion. Um, in New York. And I think we got a kind of front row seat to a lot of innovation that was happening in the digital media space. Uh, some of it was good in that it, you know, gave us employment and gave us a chance to kind of like experiment with these uh, new formats, which in some ways led us to this point. 
Um, and in other ways, it was terrible because we got to watch it all churn and, you know, cost a lot of people their jobs and ultimately kind of like fall apart uh, around what, like 2013, 2014. And Matt can speak to this better, as he probably already has on your show, actually, uh, about the, <laughs> the, the whole pivot to video and the whole Facebook devouring everybody's traffic in those years. There, well, certainly there was some bitterness there, but also just it felt like a very open lane comedically because, you know, our onion training insofar as we have any really kind of hones in on finding hypocrisy and, you know, like people that, that are talking a big game and maybe aren't actually backing it up. It, that's always been kind of a ripe target for satire. And I think this was just a, it felt like a very open target that people were not taking enough shots at. And so it felt like something that we could play around with, a space that we could find some some funny jokes in. I, you're right. I was aware about at least Matt's background because he spoke in 2018 on the show back in February of 2018. I had reached out to Matt after he was interviewed in a piece called How Facebook is Killing Comedy. In our interview on this show, Matt, certainly you expressed your frustration with what Facebook was doing. So I wanted to ask, to what extent was that frustration and irritation a goad for you to put together smarter? Yeah, I mean, I, I, it certainly was a motivating factor. I mean, it certainly is... As a writer, it you know you want to write about what you're passionate about and what you're thinking about. We kind of like made it for people like you, you know. Yeah, like there's yeah. a lot there's a, there's a lot of us out here who are like fighting this lonely fight of like yeah. trying to trying to stop you know the tech giants from destroying all of humanity. And I really felt like you know wanted, wanting to make something for those people. Our frustration with tech is not tech. It's that like all these took it over. <laughs> like there was just it was just so promising what you could do with the tools that we have and are developing and the just so few things exist that are doing the right cool things with them. And it's just such a shame to see all of that fall apart around us. I, I think that there really was a very core motivation for us to take that topic on and writing this. I think we really, there was a lot of like cathartic moments in it and a lot of things. Uh, one of my favorite episodes, episode eight, um, hottest tips, which Sam brought to the table and which I think really gets to a lot of like kind of the more personal feelings we have about and what do you sort of do now? Joe, listen, I, I know you're in trouble and I just want to let you know that if, if you want, I can connect you with some people that literally have no idea what to do with all their money. I mean, it could be like old times again if you, if you let it. No, thanks, man. That's the last place I want to be. You know, when I was partying with you, I think I was actually entering hell. And I look back at those years as the beginning of the worst times of my life. Give me a break, man. I mean, how were those the worst times of your life? You were successful back then. Where, where is the pride in your innovation? Where is your fighting spirit? Oh, my God. Dude, this type of frat boy self-help mumbo-jumbo bullshit is what makes the entire tech industry so incredibly toxic. Don't you see that? Don't you? Dude, the web used to be a refuge from this and I wasted all those years chasing every single tech trend while everybody else I knew from back home lived their real lives. They went off and they had families and they did things. And I wasn't there for them while they were doing it. Okay? And I wish somebody, anybody would have told me that I didn't have to go in for all that f Joe, I'm just trying to give you a pep talk, man. Get you back in the game, you know? The point I'd like to convey to your listeners out there is that if you're living your life inside a rigged game, the only way to win is to stop playing. What you've done with Smarter is so, to me, it was so <laughs> delicious <laughs> to, to see every one of these fallacies and scams and hypocritical notions, each one of them just set up and demolished. One of my favorite episodes was the one about DriveMind, which it was a self-driving car startup. Right. It covered a lot of the ridiculous thinking around self-driving cars and algorithms. The self-driving car is not ready, and the engineers are telling the startup founder not to take it for a test drive. But of course, since billionaire Noah Lucas is there, the founder gets in the car with Noah Lucas, and inevitably something goes wrong. The car runs off the road and actually strikes a child who's, <laughs> who's standing on the sidewalk. The child is injured. And they try to figure out later why the car, of its own accord, ran off the road and struck the child. Turns out the car had used all of the surveillance data that the cloud had gotten on this child and determined that the child was <laughs> over 80% evil on some sort of an evil scale. And so Noah Lucas concludes that the car had morality built in. And in fact, by trying to take out that kid, 
this car might have done the most moral act in all of human history. Right, exactly. Because <laughs> the kid could have gone on to, you know, become a Hitler or, you know, like lead a genocide of some kind. Um, so better to take him out. And it's such a ridiculous notion, except that you see that the pieces are in place for that sort of, whether you're talking about predictive policing or the social credit system that's being built in China that American big tech companies would certainly like to install here in the U.S., and the false promises of self-driving cars, it's hilarious, but it's also disturbing because you really are getting at relevant issues that people should be paying attention to. Right. The th I think the thing that scares me the most about self-driving cars is the idea of a like black box algorithm where you really can't figure out why a computer is behaving the way it is. It's just the result of a lot of data that's been collected and been processed through the software that's been written. And the people that work there may not be, even be able to tell you why a decision was made. And, you know, by the time the kid has been hit by the car, it's obviously already too late. That feels like a kind of frightening feature that we're already kind of halfway. You know, we're almost past the point of no return with that stuff anyway. And we're back. You're listening to Tectonic on WFMU a special montage show for July 4th. We're going over clips of interviews from the third long season of Tectonic, which was fall 2019 through spring 2020. And we have heard now two clips, uh, one from Jeremiah Moss, and the one we just heard was from Matt Kleinman and Sam West of the Smarter podcast series that came out in 2019, which I liked a lot. For the third clip for our montage show, I'm going to play you just a few minutes of my first interview that I recorded and aired with DJ Paradox. Uh, some of you know him from past shows. He's been on a couple of times since then, but this is really his first extended uh, uh, appearance on Tectonic. This was from the December 30, 2019 show, and we're talking about his experience using both the Dvorak keyboard, which he and I both use, and his experience at the time using a flip phone and how unusual that was for him at the time uh, in middle school. Here it is. DJ Paradox, welcome back to Tectonic. Thank you. Uh, what, what brings you to the station? When am I supposed to say that? <laughs> I thought we could talk about a technology topic that you have wanted to discuss on the show for some time, which has to do with typing. Now, you don't type on the same keyboard as your classmates. Tell me, what do they type on and what do you type on? So, they type in QWERTY. That, that's a key map that usually everyone uses. It's it's Q uh, W E R T Y. On and the top, yes. On the top. And uh, if you're playing a game, you use W A S and D. Right, the WASD interface. Yeah. Up, down, left, right, yep. But the key map I use, or the keyboard, is known as Dvorak, which um, it's not in the order of Dvorak, but on the left, it's A O E U and I, so all the uh, vowels on in the home positions. In the home positions, yes, yeah. and then all the consonants. Consonants, the uh, common consonants. The common consonants on the uh, right-hand home side. Home positions. Home positions, and um, the numbers are the same. But there's a bit of history to this. What originally happened is the QWERTY keyboard was designed for people to. Um, to type slow so that their so that their typewriters wouldn't jam up and so they needed to type slowly so that their keys they didn't stick right they, they were mechanical rods they were mechanical yes right and of course we don't have those anymore so we there's no need for the qwerty keyboard also the typing too much in the qwerty keyboard can hurt your wrist a lot and lead to some problems in your wrist but the Dvorak keyboard is fluid and smooth and doesn't give you any problems also it lets you type way faster like most of the kids in my grade can type at 30 words per minute but I'm topping out at 80 <laughs> how do you know you're topping out at 80 well there's this words per minute test that I take 
That's cool. And do your classmates notice that you type faster than them? Yeah. What do they say? Wow, you're a really fast typer. But um, when we used to have keyboards, like without laptops, I had these stickers on the various keys to show, oh, this is where this is, this is where this, but now I've just memorized them. So you can type on a keyboard that has the QWERTY markings on it, and you can touch type in Dvorak, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, do any of your classmates show any interest in switching over to Dvorak? Not really. They just say, oh, that, that seemed very hard, memorizing all the things. But your hands just get used to it, kind of like playing piano. I would think that at least somebody would say, wow, you're typing so quickly, and you claim it's because of this key map. Can I try? Mm, no one really says. I think it's just the fear of being more different than everyone else because... Everyone types QWERTY and just be a hassle to get the other keyboard. Do you feel like you're different from your classmates because of that? No. Well, it sounds like it's not a very visible difference anyway. It's... Yeah, it, most people don't even notice. Uh, do you have any desire to go back to QWERTY? No. I mean, now that I've just memorized all of this. And plus, I think about the words per minute I've gained and the wrist problems that could happen down the road. That's right. You're likely to be typing a lot. Uh, that is until the big tech neural devices. Do you think that you would ever get some sort of a, a neural insert that would let you type just by thinking? Probably not, but I mean, I say probably not now, but if it's like all the rage when it comes out, then I'd probably have to. But I, I just don't like the idea because I just end up thinking the wrong thing and it, should, it would just type out. <laughs> You'd have to police your thoughts. Yeah. You remember when I read that book, 1984? Yeah. Yeah, that was, that was part of what was happening there. They had the thought police. Let's talk about phones. Okay. Uh, what, what kind of a phone do you carry around? Unfortunately, I have a flip phone. Why do you say unfortunately? Well, it costs $20, and all it can do is call and text. That sounds pretty cool to me. I'd gladly switch. Switch to not having a phone? No, I'd gladly swap phones with you, because you have a normal one. <laughs> do any of your classmates have a flip phone? No. You're the only only kid you know who has a flip phone? Yes. Well, actually, one kid at my camp had a flip phone. And another one had one of those ladybug phones. Oh, cool. But the ladybug, you can text, play games, and do some other stuff. It's just smaller. But lots of my uh, classmates said they used to have a flip phone back in, like, third grade. Okay. Well, that's pretty cool. But it takes, like, it takes like five minutes to type one word because you have to select the letter. So I'm not, like, always on my phone because there's no social media, no games. Nothing to keep you occupied. You're just calling in text. Do your friends ever comment on your flip phone? Yeah. What do they say? Stinks to be you. <laughs> <laughs> well, then you can just bring up Dvorak and boom, right? I mean, they don't really think of it as like a perk. I mean... What do you think you'll do when you get a smartphone? Download all the games I can on it to make up the years of... Of deprivation? Yes. So you think you'll spend a lot of time texting and playing games? Well, I wouldn't get, like, attached to my phone like everyone else, but of the time that I spend on my phone, I'd be doing those two things. Okay. And we're back. You're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst. We are airing a special montage show for July 4th. I am not in the studio. This is being recorded a few days ahead of time, but I wanted to provide a show for you on July 4th, uh, whether you're listening live or in the archives or in the podcast, because there's just uh, a wealth of really good conversations from past guests, and I wanted to pull from a few of those. We're listening to some clips from shows in the third season of Tectonic, which was fall 2019 through spring 2020. And for this third clip, we just heard DJ Paradox talking about his flip phone at school and how he would gladly switch <laughs> with, with me 
And uh, since then, you'll be happy to know that two and a half years later, he does have a smartphone. He is not addicted to his smartphone. And I'm glad that my wife and I waited until I forget what age he was, but it was it was a while before he got a smartphone. So that has turned out well. So thank you to DJ Paradox for being with me and, uh, and, and joining us on this montage show for July 4th, 2022. Let's go on to our fourth clip. This is one of my favorite interviews that I've ever done on Tectonic, an interview with journalist and author Rana Faruhar, who uh, wrote a book that either came out in late 2019 or early 2020. This book is worth reading if you if you can get a copy. It's called Don't Be Evil, How Big Tech Betrayed Its Founding Principles and All of Us. And again, like, like all these shows, all these clips, you can find on the Tectonic one-page website at tectonic.fm, T-E-C-H-tonic.fm, or you can go to the WFMU archives at wfmu.org. Let's go ahead and listen to this clip with Rana Faruhar about her book, Don't Be Evil, and uh, some of the uh, lessons that we can derive from Google's history. Here it is. Now, early on, just after Google was founded as a search engine on the Stanford servers, uh, you write the story about how co-founders Sergey Brin and Larry Page were prompted by, I think, a, an advisor to write an academic paper describing the architecture of the search engine, which they did, and it's become somewhat of a well-known paper for people who study this kind of history, because in one part of this paper, again, this is early on, I think it was um, 98 or so, Brin and Page stated unequivocally that there was one thing that Google or any self-regarding search engine should never do. And what, what was that? Make money from targeted advertising. Is... <laughs> Whatever we do, we should never make money off of targeted ads. Why did they say that? Well, it was, it's very interesting. For starters, you have to read to the very end of this paper, which... I did, but I'm kind of amazed at how many people that care about this stuff haven't or don't seem to have read to the end. If, if you do, you get to this appendix section where we've heard about what the search engine is, how you run it, how it's going to be used, but then how do you make money from it? And what they say in this section on advertising and its discontents is, look, if you charge money for targeted advertising, you're basically then going to be following people around the web. You're going to be selling that information to the highest bidder. And those advertisers, be they companies, be they public sector entities, their needs and what they want to do with that information is inevitably going to come into conflict with the well-being of users. And that was considered a no-go zone for the founders. And, you know, it's interesting because when you see the heads of these companies, not just Google, but all the big tech firms coming to Washington, they're always talking about the users. Well, whatever we do is in the best interest of the users. But again, if you go back to 1998, right there in print, it's saying targeted advertising is not in the best interest of our users. And yet, that's about 85, 90% of Google's revenue today. <laughs> we get, and we're going to get to the current state of affairs because it certainly has changed from that early vision. In the early days, it's true, certainly before they went public, I think Brandon Page had an early vision for a search engine that would get users the results they wanted and then get them off the site to whatever experience they were hoping to have outside of Google. That changed in my reading of, of your book, Rana, Don't Be Evil, and some other sources. I understand that that change, or, or at least began to change, when the company started getting pressure from investors in the wake of the dot-com crash in 2001. Can you walk me through what happened there? Yeah, absolutely. So let's start. 1998, the company is founded. Um, they start to try different models of monetization. They try subscription models. They try some very kind of simple banner advertising, things that are not about surveillance capitalism per se. But as you see the dot-com boom and bust, and that was something I, I have to say I took part in, which we'll maybe come back to. But 
you get the venture capitalists saying, look, we need better numbers. We need to please Wall Street. We need something really strong here that's going to pop in the imagination of the bankers and the traders that are going to buy this stock. And so the company at that point, under pressure from its venture capitalists, decided to start looking at this auction model for advertising, um, which eventually turned into what's called AdSense. That was something that was perfected actually by Sheryl Sandberg, who's now of course at Facebook. Um, and the idea of tracking users using cookies, um, as they are were first known, sometimes that phrase is still used, to track users around the internet, collect that information, and then monetize that information by having digital auctions for the highest bidder, that became the business model. And it, it's really interesting because you see, if you start tracking Google's profits before they use targeted advertising and after, it's just an exponential difference. I mean, this was really the beginning of surveillance capitalism, which of course is um, uh, Shoshana Zuboff's phrase to describe this business model of following you around the web, seeing what you're doing, and then selling it to the highest bidder. That's right. And Zuboff has been on the show to talk about that book, which I think makes a, a nice compliment to Don't Be Evil and describing the underpinnings of this new economic model. But in your telling, Rana, which I found so helpful, and yes, you interleaved it with, <laughs> with your own experience of going through the dot-com boom before 2001, I really, I appreciated that because I was in that frothy environment myself <laughs> uh, early in my career. And so I resonated with a lot of your experiences and I think some of the early idealism that it sounds like we both shared along with a lot of our peers at that time. But as you say, Google the moment they merely compromised that central value that they had stated in the academic paper, all of a sudden their profits are growing exponentially and, so to speak, they're off to the races and they've never looked back. Yeah, and it's all, it really, you know, everything the company has done since then has been about creating new venues from which to gather more and more information about users. Um, and that's where... Of course, they've run into a lot of legal issues, antitrust challenges. I mean, if you look um, several years ago, there was an FTC ruling that information across, say, search and handsets shouldn't be combined. And then uh, the company was questioned about whether they were in violation of that. I mean, you look at every app, every product that Google has pushed forward, it's all about how can we get more and more data and then layer it into what... Roger McNamee, who recently wrote another book on this topic called Zucked, has called a digital voodoo doll, which I think is a very apt expression. That's right. And <laughs> to, not to name drop too much, Rana, but uh, McNamee has also been on the show. All good and, people uh... are on your show. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I do like to name drop because I think it's important for folks to, you know, we need all these books. We need all these voices in this debate because the problem is so enormous, you know? That's right. One thing that really came through in, in reading Don't Be Evil is how urgent this is for people to become aware of because of the supreme concentration of power. You really took the time to dive into how this concentration of power plays out economically and politically and socially. The fact that there's just a small handful of leaders at, you know, a half dozen companies on the west coast of the U.S., and, and we could we could lump in a few in China as well, yep. that really are in the driver's seat for the global economy and how important it is that we pay attention to that and begin to mount some kind of re response, which we'll get to. But let's talk about some of the aspects of this concentration of power one of the many that you expertly describe in the book is what you call the revolving door, the number of U.S. government officials that have been at big tech companies, Google foremost among them, and vice versa, how many senior executives at Google and other big tech companies were hired from the highest ranks of the U.S. government. How does that work, Rana? It's interesting, this this sort of revolving door between Silicon Valley and really the Obama administration is kind of where it started, although certainly both parties 
have tight, tight relationships now with the big tech companies, which play a huge role. I mean, Facebook and Google in particular play a huge role in the political process and almost act as campaign advisors. That revolving door reminded me a lot of the revolving door between Wall Street and Washington, which was the topic of my previous book. So I had looked very carefully when trying to study the 2008 financial crisis and what led to that. I had looked at this kind of cognitive capture where you get over, I believe it was over a dozen treasury secretaries uh, have come from Goldman Sachs, a single bank. Well, you now have that kind of relationship with the big tech firms and in particular with Google where there's this cycling in and out from this company, these companies, from the, the high level tech industry in general into Washington, into policy making positions in such a way that these companies and the people in charge of them can now really reshape the regulatory landscape in ways that favor them. And there are any number of examples of that in my book. I mean, one would be the patent system. It's a contentious area. It hasn't gotten a lot of press in part because liberals tend to be very anti-patent. But if you look at the way in which the big tech firms, Google in particular, have really reshaped patents, it's favored big companies, even if they're run by Democrats in a blue state, at the expense of small and mid-sized businesses. And that was very much a part of this cognitive capture. This is all a part, too, of this bigger problem of money and politics in the American system. And it's perhaps no surprise at this point that big tech is amongst the top two or three industries just as a lobbying force in general, along with Wall Street and Big Pharma. And in fact, one of the reasons I decided to write the book was that when I first started my job at the Financial Times, where I'm a global business columnist, my mandate was to write about the biggest economic and political stories out there in the world. And that's kind of a big mandate. So I tried to narrow the funnel by looking at where is corporate wealth right now. And I came across this amazing statistic noting that 10% of all companies were holding about 80% of corporate wealth. And I thought, wow, that's an incredible concentration. And it turned out that those companies were the companies that were richest in personal data and intellectual property. And chief amongst them were the fangs, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Google. And you can see that a lot of power in the last decade has flowed from Wall Street straight into Silicon Valley, which is in some ways now the too big to fail industry. If you go back to how the financial system is supposed to operate, the financial markets are, they're just supposed to be a help meet to other industries, right? So we all save money, we funnel that savings into banks, and banks are supposed to lend the money back out to people who need it for home mortgages or to start small businesses. That's how the economy works, that's how you create jobs. But the financial industry sits in the middle portion of that hourglass, and so it can take whatever it wants in rent uh, as money flows through the hourglass from one side to the other. Well, the technology industry is like that times 10, because if you think about how fast capital can flow across borders, across really barriers of any kind, data can flow even faster. And so you can see companies like Google, like Apple, like Facebook being the new controllers of that middle part of the hourglass in the global digital economy. And, you know, it's no accident that they can now go into new sectors like finance, like healthcare, like the grocery business, you know, if you're Amazon, and just take it over overnight because they are so powerful. They are the new gatekeepers in our economy. And we're back. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU a special montage show for our July 4th, 2022 broadcast. This is not live. I'm recording this a few days in advance, uh, but very happy to share with you these clips from some favorite past conversations from the third season of Tectonic, fall 2019 through spring 2020. Uh, The last guest that I'm going to feature on today's montage show is Ryan Walsh, who's an author and a musician and a journalist, uh, you might know him, uh, his, his music from the group Hallelujah the Hills. And in this interview from June 1st, 2020, 
uh, we were talking about an, an article he had written in Stereo Gum that had just come out in May 2020. The article, which I think you can still find online, is called Do Electric Songwriters Dream of Human Muses? which was about the new, at the time, OpenAI jukebox that was uh, created by the team at OpenAI, which has been heavily funded by Elon Musk and Microsoft and others. Here is Ryan Walsh talking about the research he did into AI-inspired, I have trouble calling it music, um, but sound that, well, you'll hear, it's, it's tagged to certain musicians and um, is very strange listening. But I, I thought Ryan did a great job on his article. Here is a clip from my interview with Ryan Walsh from June 1st, 2020. What happened last month, yeah, last month, a, a San Francisco research company called OpenAI released something called OpenAI Jukebox. And the way they explained what people could now experience, and there were many, many examples, audio examples, of AI-generated music. And it was very specific. The prime examples were, for example, we fed it all of Elvis's music and asked it to create a new Elvis song. We fed it all of the Beatles' discography and asked for a new Beatles song. And it's a neural network, which to my understanding means the more it works and processes on things, the more it learns. And probably learns would be in quotes there, but... Um, and what you hear are these very spooky artifacts that both sound super familiar, but also don't follow human logic as we understand it. They were kind of just like these ghost songs to me when I first heard them. They spooked me, for sure, <laughs> because they're both with the accuracy, you know, that's unmistakably Elvis's voice singing words um, he never uttered, or lines or uh, lyrics he never uttered. And they plopped that out into the world. And I quickly became obsessed with it. Okay, let's let's get to an example. I'm going to play for the listeners now a little bit of that Elvis Presley track. From dusty tiny bumble scarf, but the little tells the heart. When my closeness, when my hell is that fine. At last, when he woke up with a mind I'm just a game, but he helped him get the tears to get to rack When his CT was a jealous, listen to me At last, he woke up with a soul Okay, and so that was the OpenAI jukebox version of an Elvis Presley song or an Elvis Presley-inspired song. And you write in the Stereo Gum piece, the lyrics to the Elvis Presley track become absolutely terrifying, wherein it becomes just about impossible to not read this as a song about a computer gaining consciousness and announcing its birth to the listener. Selected lyrical excerpt here. At last we woke up with a mind... At last, we woke up with a soul. We, <laughs> we, sorry. Elvis wasn't actually laughing there. We came to exist, and we know no limits. With a heart that never sleeps, let us live. To complete our life with this team, we'll sing to life. Sing to the end of time. Every living thing shall sing as we take another step. All right. Now, <laughs> so... <laughs> That, Ryan, that does not sound like Elvis Presley. <laughs> Here, here's some things to know about what we just heard. It's not the same neural network. It's a kind of a sister text generator that someone else at OpenAI generated. I think it's called Talk to Converter. Um, I'll have to check that. But it's basically you enter a prompt, which can be one sentence or, you know, 50 sentences. And then it kind of spins off that and creates a lot of new related text. The problem with these new Elvis lyrics is, we, A, we don't know which part of this was the human prompt, or if the human prompt was included in the song, and what the human prompt was. I would give it another go <laughs> if I was trying to quell audiences right. into, in, into, into maybe kind of like, okay, this is interesting, and this you know, could be an aid to humans. When these lyrics arrived, how the researchers didn't immediately 
burn them forever <laughs> and say, let's get some new ones <laughs> is really beyond me. Well, I can't speak for the researchers at OpenAI, and I, I think you went out of your way to praise them where you could. Sure, yeah. I mean, because there has been AI-generated music before, but it's never had original vocals and original lyrics, for sure. So in the style of other vocalists, I mean, so something remarkable has happened. It's, a, it's an advance of a sort, but you bring up an interesting point that given that there is some level of human interaction with these songs, again, like you say, there are a few different ways that these were put together with respect to the neural network. There's at least some human curation at some point in the process. If nothing else, they hit publish <laughs> on the resulting right. song. And the moment at which they hit publish, it had these lyrics. At last, we woke up with a mind, with a soul. We know no limits. And you wonder why would that, you know, no disrespect to the researchers, but why would you choose that moment to right. publish? Yes. But I would point out that, again, not knowing any of the researchers, not having spoken to any of them, but I can state that OpenAI is very much a Silicon Valley project. It was co-founded by Elon Musk uh -huh. yep. and Sam Altman and just last year got $1 billion, that's billion with a B, dollars from Microsoft. And so although they present themselves as a nonprofit research group, yes. they really have very big money behind them. And I think quietly the big money and the big names – are all hoping for big, profitable, and powerful outcomes. And just from the track record of other marquee Silicon Valley efforts, I haven't seen a lot of self-awareness as to how these things present themselves in the wider world. Well, right. Exactly right. And I thought it was a wise move for me to keep my outsider freak out to a minimum and just kind of like I let Elon Musk do the freaking out in the piece because really he did do something remarkable. He funded OpenAI. He left the company. And then within seven months of leaving, he was on the Joe Rogan podcast grimly stating, I tried to warn them. Like, I mean, I'm not exaggerating. If you if you look up this <laughs> right. video, it's, it's, it's like he's either hamming it up thinking like this is a sci-fi movie or he's a man who's generally worried that we've crossed some boundary without asking the right questions yet. And we're back. If you're just tuning in, once again, you are listening to Tectonic on WFMU, a special montage show. We just heard my interview, a clip from my interview from June 1st, 2020 with musician and author Ryan Walsh, finishing up our montage show for July 4th, 2022. I hope you have enjoyed the show. I certainly had a lot of fun going into those uh, interviews from the third season of Tectonic 2019 through early 2020 to um, pull those together for you. Uh, we are out of time, and uh, next week, Ken Friedman is going to be guest hosting on the show, so I know you will enjoy that, and I plan to be back in two weeks on, I guess it's uh, July 18, so I'm looking forward to seeing you live, I hope on that evening. In the meantime, friends, you have been listening to the greatest radio station in the world, WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope in New York City and Rockland County at 91.9 FM and online at WFMU.org. Until next time, friends, you know what to do. Avoid Amazon and Apple, forget Facebook, and whatever you do, get off Google. Have a great week. <laughs> Well, good evening and uh, a happy holiday to you, if you celebrate. I'm Dan Boda, and this is uh, Vocal Fry here on WFMU. The show every Monday night from uh, 8 to 9 on WFMU, where we explore the extremes of the human uh, vocal 
range and uh, capacity and ingenuity. Uh, and tonight uh, we are going to focus on the music of Diamanda Galas. I am filling in for Ebba tonight, who's uh, um, not here. I'll be on for two hours, so seven to nine tonight. And uh, we'll be listening to music from throughout the discography of Diamanda Galas. It is the week that uh, the Supreme Court eliminated constitutional protection for women to choose whether or not to bear a child and set the stage to eliminate protection for those who wish to have uh, relationships of whatever kind with uh, people of their own gender. Although, what does that even mean anymore? Uh, and has uh, even perhaps set the stage for the uh, outlawing of contraceptives, the uh, potentially uh, rein reinstatement of anti-miscegenation -mis statutes, banning uh, interracial marriage. Maybe that one will be a 5-4 decision. I thought uh, it would be a good time to catch up with... Uh, with the diva Diamanda Galas, uh, who often uh, represents the the victims, the spurned, the oppressed, the outsider in her music, and uh, takes a like um, I don't know if I would call it a turn the other cheek. I would call it more like I'm going to stab you in the eye kind of a, a stance toward the oppressor. Vengeance and rage here on Vocal Fry tonight, 7 to 9 o'clock. And uh, may independence reign. We're starting off with a live recording of uh, Diamanda. This is uh, a version um, from a performance at St. Thomas the Apostle in Harlem uh, of Angels. A song originally recorded by Albert Eiler.
Yeah. 